0: So we're in a sermon series this this summer um, looking at the attributes of God, the character of God from um, the Psalms. And this morning, our psalm is Psalm 104, and our attribute of God is the playfulness of God. So hear God's uh, word from the psalmist, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Covering yourself with light as a gar- with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent, he lays bare the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind and he makes his messen- his messengers he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. He set the foundation- the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with as with a garment and the mountains stood above the water; the water stood above the mountains and at your rebuke they fled at the sound of your thunder they took to flight the mountains rose the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth you make springs gush forth in the valleys They flow between the hills, and they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. For your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are for a refuge for the rock badgers. He has made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. And man goes out to his work, and to his labor, until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, which is the sea. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you you give it to them, they gather it up, and when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and trembles? It trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been... Being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Why did God create the world? Was God lonely? Was God bored? Did God in some sense need creation to complete Himself? This is a question that um, I think we've all asked, children often ask. It's a very profound question. But it's not a question the Bible directly addresses. The Bible assumes a, an answer. I think though, if there is a an answer to the question of why God created the world, we have something. Um, of it here in Psalm 104. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to verses 24 and 26. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. It's a mention of of the Leviathan that I want to draw your attention to. It says that God created the Leviathan to frolic there. To frolic there, that is, in the sea. Um, A better translation is just that God created the Leviathan just to play in the sea. According to the psalmist, God creates this great sea creature simply for the sake of play. Uh, Leviathan is is a word... um, that uh, refers to kind of a mythological sea creature. In um, Moby Dick, right, the great whale is, is described as a leviathan, it's this sort of ominous, um, dangerous creature of the sea. So it could have been a blue whale, or a sperm whale, or, or maybe it was megalodon. You guys know megalodon, like the, the ancient, uh, huge great white sharks, you know, that's like 100 foot long? That's very possibly what leviathan was. This, terrifying sea creature to human beings but while leviathan is a terrifying sea creature to us to god leviathan is simply a a plaything like a rubber ducky in in the ocean this creature's reasons for existing why would god create such a terrifying beast is because god simply delighted in it as a plaything Why did God create the world? I would submit to you that God is a playful God and that he created a universe full of things, in a sense, to play and to delight him as its own end. God created the world because God is a playful God. So I suspect that playfulness is not an attribute you've ever thought of ascribing to God. Um, we, when we think about God, we think about much more serious things, attributes like holiness, justice, uh, omnipotence, uh, but play or playfulness doesn't seem to be one that is appropriate to God, right? Playfulness is, seems beneath God. Uh, play is what children do, right? Not what adults do. Adults don't play, they work. Because work is serious business. Work accomplishes something in the world. And when we do play as adults, usually it's a break from work. We just need a breather. Play doesn't accomplish anything in the world. It doesn't produce anything. Now, on this way of thinking of how God relates to the world, I mean, God is all business and no pleasure, right? But I want to propose to you that to understand God as the creator, you have to understand God as a playful God. That the deeper reason for creating the world was for the sake of playfulness. And that far from being a trivial or uh, you know, facetious thing, play is a profound thing. Play is serious. G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic writer, novelist, essayist, said that he learned more by watching children play than he did, ever did from all the books of philosophy he read. That he learned more about the world from watching children play than all the philosophy books he read. The thing about play is that play is an end in itself. It serves no other purpose than simply enjoyment and pleasure. Generally speaking, unless you're able to monetize other people's play, Uh, Play does not accomplish anything in the world. Play will not pay your mortgage. Play uh, will not alleviate suffering or bring about justice in the world. Play will not make you smarter or better looking. The only thing that play accomplishes is pleasure and delight and enjoyment. Play, in a sense, is an end in itself, it doesn't serve any other purpose beyond itself. And in this sense, I think play is helpful for us to understand what the meaning of worship is. Play and praise go together. Play and praise go together. Uh, To worship God is to enjoy God, to delight in God. To worship God is to take pleasure in the works of God and who God is. To worship God is an end in itself, and it serves no other purpose than simply to praise and to delight in God. And in that sense, play and praise are very similar. Uh, worship accomplishes nothing useful in the world. That's why it's so important for the church to always be worshiping. Worship is, again, about God, and the church is about God. It is the end of all things. And somehow, mysteriously, this creator God has all this mixed together in his creation. So this is a psalm of nature, arguably the greatest nature psalm in the Bible. And what the psalmist aims to teach us in this psalm is how to relate to the God who created the universe. And that the proper experience of creation in all of its beauty, in all of its different contexts, whether it's in the mountains or in the sea or, or you know, in the field, um, the, the proper uh, response should be to evoke worship in us as we experience this creation and all of its its diversity and beauty and glory. And that's why the psalm, it's it's a psalm of worship. It opens with the same line. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. And it closes with, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The experience of creation should evoke in us a sense of awe and praise to the one who created it god uh, created the world not because the world was useful to him that he had things he needed to do to accomplish not because the world met some kind of need he had that was lacking god creates the world out of sheer pleasure and delight as an overflow of his bountiful nature and plenitude out of the overflow of his love And this is the highest reason that it can be given for why God created the world. And the pleasure and playfulness of God is ingrained in the very uh, fabric of creation. Things are always playing: Children, dogs, dolphins. I mean, birds singing. Birds don't have to sing, but they sing. It's beautiful, right? Again, this all reflects the joy and the delight of God in His own creation. That means that the proper human response to creation should be uh, praise. Just like birds sing, by being birds, we ought to praise. That's what it means to be a human being. So worship of God is a proper response to our experience of creation. However, we seldom do this properly. We we, we tend to get off the rails in a number of different directions. And there's two particular errors that we we make as we uh, think about God and creation. The first one is we tend to um, we see the wonders and the beauties and the magnitude of creation, um, and it's easy to to be tempted to want to worship the creation itself. And in our thinking, sometimes we get confused between the created order and and God Himself. And in ancient cultures, especially in the time of the Scripture, the Bible, you know. Um, People worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is why those are so often mentioned. Because the psalmists, they want us to know that these are actually creatures. These are things God created, not gods. So there's, 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 there's a way in which we're often tempted to confuse God with his creation. So that's one error. The, the other one is the opposite direction, that as we, especially in a modern scientific you know, post-enlightenment world, understand more and more about nature, how the brain works, how the body works, how, how things, you know, come into existence. Um, we're tempted to think, well, God's not necessary. We don't need a creator to explain this stuff. We, can, we just haven't understood everything enough. So, so, on the other side, we say, we, we, you know, as we learn more about the marvels of the universe and we can explain it down to subatomic particles or, or the highest levels of astrophysics, we we think, well, God is not necessary for us to make sense of creation. And for the psalmist, both of these are are heirs. On the one hand, God is not part of creation, and yet creation can't be understood without God. So there's three things in particular I want to draw your attention to in this psalm um, that the psalmist wants us to learn about how God relates to creation. First is that God is independent of creation. Second is that God is, is the intimate sustainer of creation, and the third is that God truly delights in his creation. Um, to say that God is independent of creation means that his relationship to created things is, is one of towering transcendence and unlimited power. In and, and the psalmist, the first, uh, the first section of this psalm, verses 2 through 9 in particular, um, they, they visualize um, in a, in a poetic way, God's transcendence, his, his, his aboveness to the created things. And, and just look at some of the language that it's used to, to capture the majesty of God, right? He wraps God, God wraps himself with light as with a garment, right? He takes the sun and, and, and the light of a million stars and he uses it like a cloak. Um, he, he stretches out the heavens like a tent Right? You're thinking about billions and billions of galaxies and, it, and it's like God, it's just sort of like pitching a tent. Or he lays the beams of the earth, the foundations he sets. It's like, a, you know, you watch them making, you know, new high-rises and dr- doing pillars and putting in these beams to support these 60-story buildings. Imagine the earth, right, like that God sets it on its pillars. That he rides on the clouds like a chariot that he the, wings, the, the winds are like wind, wings to him. Or imagine like all the oceans, like he says to the ocean, stop here and go here. This is uh, an awesome picture of a God that, that commands the created order to do what he says. And as you look at the psalm, if you were to break it down and look at the progression of the language, it, it really reflects Genesis 1 and the account of creation, which starts with the heavens and the earth, and sort of moves sequentially down, focusing more on on, um, animal life and and that. And this psalm very much evokes Genesis 1 and wants us to think in terms of that. And if you remember the very first verse of the Bible, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's so much in these first couple verses of Genesis that set the, the kind of parameters or boundaries for our thinking of how God relates to creation. And in the ancient Near Eastern cultures um, were very different ways of thinking about how God created. Most um, ancient accounts of creation were, uh, creation comes about as, as a result of a battle of the gods. Right, and the, the creation itself ends up being a part of some severed limb of a god such that there's violence at the very heart of creation, uh, but, but that, in a sense, creation is this sort of pre-existing stuff that's part of the gods in some ways. And, and the Christian understanding of God creating the world, we, the, the tradition the theological tradition developed a term that called creation from nothing, creatio ex nihilo, that when God created the world, he wasn't starting with pre-existing stuff that he sort of was manipulating and sort of bringing into being, that when God created the word, he spoke. He said, let it be. And it was. There was nothing prior, and he brought something that did not exist into existence by the words of his mouth. This is a very important doctrine um, that, that, that is, it's basically the presupposition of God's relating to creation. And what that means in particular is that God is totally, completely independent to his creation, completely and totally free He does not need the world, nor does in any way he depend on the world in order to be God. God does not need the world to be God. That's a very important um, statement as a Christian in our understanding of who God is. It's very hard to overestimate how important this is. And incidentally, the rise of modern science and the Enlightenment and the study of nature and, and everything we kind of take for granted today is possible because of this view. Because if God is independent of creation, creation itself has its own special integrity and independence as God's creation. Um, just to want to put that there. Now, the alternative to the biblical view of God as the one who creates out of nothing, the one who is transcendent over his creation in relationship to it, is a view... Uh, called pantheism, or panentheism, meaning like all God, right? Pan, all, theism, God. So so this is the view that that God and creation are are kind of intermingled. There's a whole spectrum of views. It's all the way to closer to the Hindu view, which is that God and creation are one and the same thing, to views where God has a little bit of separation, but God and creation are kind of intermingled a bit. That creation is an extension of the divine. And this is a very uh, I mean, this goes back to ancient religions. This would have been a view that would have been, in part, what was the view of creation in the time of the Hebrews. You see it in Eastern religions and native religions, but it's also very much in popular spirituality today. Right? Think of many of the Disney movies, right? Pocahontas, or um, one of my favorites, The Lion King. right? The circle of life, all things kind of repeat. There's a sense that the divine is coursing through all natural things, bubbling up in different ways, or you think of the Star Wars, right? What is the force but a kind of divine energy that you can tap into? This is a very, again, it's a very, very popular understanding, and I think it has its, its creed in the, uh, I'm spiritual, not religious, right? If, you're, if God is everywhere, if God is in all things, then, you know, why do you need a church in particular? Why do you need to define this God in a particular way. God is manifest in hundreds of thousands of different ways, and you can find him everywhere. So, this, this is a very powerful way of thinking about the world that is very influential, I think, in, in popular culture. And, but from the biblical perspective, it is a confusion of creation with the creature. There's a confusion of creation and the creature. Right? Um, If God and creation cannot be clearly distinguished or are basically one and the same or interdependent upon one another, if divinity bubbles up everywhere around us but isn't definitively present or can't be defined or, in a sense, clarified, um, then this is a God that can't really stand over against his creation. This is a God that we can't, with real strong terms, talk about as having being a person. He can't have a personality or personhood if he's sort of everywhere in all different ways, right? And I think this is a problem, right? Um, you know, this is all right when life is going well, when things are going well in life, but when things are not going well in life, um, there's a, how is it that God can ever stand over against us and to say no or to judge evil or wickedness? If God and creation are sort of intermingled together, then evil in the world, injustice in the world, it's partially God's responsibility and fault. You know, we, I think, are attracted to a spirituality that sort of wants to make God a part of all these things in part because it allows us to kind of keep going on with who we think we are, and we just continually affirm, find the divine within. But again, the God of the Bible is a God that stands over against at times as the creator, as the judge, but also as the redeemer. If God is not independent of his creation, then um, what it means for God to rescue creation and its creatures from the misery of evil and injustice and sin is very difficult to imagine. And one of the things you see in the Bible, and especially in in the Hebrew people, is that whenever they are hard-pressed and cry out for salvation, and God delivers in a big way, God as the Redeemer of Israel always evokes God as the Creator as well. Because it's only the God who has the power of creation is the God who has the power to break the strongholds of evil and injustice and sin in the world. And that's what you see time and again in, in the Old Testament. So the psalmist wants us to know that God is independent of creation. In no way should creation be divinized or confused with God himself. But if I were to stop right there, you would have a very lopsided and very distorted view of how God relates to his creation. In fact, you might come away thinking that somehow this is this cold, distant God that is out there and Kind of rules creation like like a tyrant rules a nation. But nothing could be further from the truth. And so we have to keep continuing reading on in this psalm. Um, There is a notable shift in the verbs uh, of verses 2 through 9 and what happens after that. And In verses 2 through 9, you have these verbs of command that characterize how God relates to the universe. So God wraps and stretches and lays and rides and rebukes, sets in place, draws a boundary and covers. These are verbs of command that that evoke God's transcendence and power as the creator. But then what you have happen here is you have this shift um, from verbs of command to verbs of nurture. God's work as transcendent creator is not in contradiction to his work as the intimate sustainer and part of God's work as the creator is the act of sustaining creation. So um, look at these, some of these verbs of nurture. Uh, verses 10 through 30. So God waters, he gives, he directs, he plants, he quenches, he feeds, he gladdens, he satisfies, he grows. Look in particular at how he describes the relationship of the lions <laughs> to God. Lions roar for their prayer, and they seek their food from God. I mean, it's just sort of like your dog, right? At like 5 o'clock, it's sort of like, I'm hungry, feed me. And he's like, looking to you. And he's like, okay, it's time, right? And this is the exact same thing. This is what, this is what the psalmist is saying about all of animal life. The lions, the fiercest, you know, one of the fiercest land animals, you think they're, they're looking to God like a dog. You know, feed us, feed us. the sun rises, and they steal away. They return and lie down to their dens, and then man goes to his work and to his labor until evening. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time, and when you give it to them, they gather it up, and you open your hand, and they're satisfied with good things. See, what's the image of God here? It is the image of of a farmer feeding his animals, caring and tending to them. See, God is not See, the lopsided view of God that sakes God as utterly transcendent is God as the clockmaker who winds up the universe like a clock and then steps back into the background to let it do its thing. But that is not the God of the Bible. The universe is not a giant clock that God wound up and then stepped back and set in motion. God, even though he's transcendent, and this is again part of the mystery of God in the Bible. Even though God is utterly transcendent and independent of his creation, he chooses in his own freedom to be as intimately involved in sustaining the creation moment by moment as you could possibly imagine. And let me draw your attention to that language of intimacy. Sometimes theologians will talk about God's work of sustaining creation as like a continuous creation. Where God is moment by moment continuing to create by simply sustaining the created order. Look at what verses 29 and 30. <clears throat> Speaking of God, when you hide your face, they are terrified. This is the animals. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to the dust. And when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. The, the idea here is that <clears throat> God's creator spirit, his ruach, his breath, is, is, is so tied to life that, that actually the presence of God's creator spirit at all times is a condition for life. And that when God withdraws his spirit, life goes back to the dust. It ceases to exist. It becomes inanimate. This is the same image you have <clears throat> in, in Genesis 2. The image when God forms the first human being, he, he pulls the man, and he, you know, he's like a potter, f- shaping and fashioning the man. <clears throat> and then it says that he breathed, <coughs> he breathed the breath of life, the ruach, the spirit, such that the, the, the man came alive. The biblical understanding of life is this, is that um, you, me, your dogs, the squirrels, the ladybugs, Uh, All of life, moment by moment, exists because God's creator spirit causes it to continue to exist. This is a picture of intimacy that is far greater than you you could possibly get. And yet, and yet this God is still free, independent of his creation. If you didn't have those first nine verses, you'd think that this is pantheism. But it's not. Excuse me, my throat is, let me cough real quick. God is invisible. And yet it is the glue, the literal glue of the universe, without which the universe ceases to exist. One of the conclusions we should draw from this understanding of God as a creator um, for our own spiritual life is a sense of radical dependence. <clears throat> yes, creation has its own uh, integrity and independence as God created it, but we are radically dependent on God for all of our life, totally and completely Dependent on God as our creator and sustainer, every moment of our life, the Spirit of God must uphold us, must uphold all of life. Now, the psalmist wants us to know that even though God is utterly independent and free in relationship to the creation, he is nevertheless profoundly, intimately involved in sustaining the creation moment by moment. But perhaps you are starting to feel a bit of the tension uh, in this psalm. Indeed, God is the Creator's spirit upholding life moment by moment, and that's a pretty incredible thought. But what? But there's a terrifying thought that's right behind it. <clears throat> what if God stops upholding our existence? What if God withdraws his spirit? The psalmist feels this problem, and his tone shifts from wonder to fear. He says, when you hide your face, that is God, when you you take your presence away, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to the dust. As creatures, we are utterly and completely dependent on God for our existence. What if God decides to withdraw his spirit from us? What if God were to walk away from his creation? What if God were to be become upset, right? And hide his face. It's a terrifying thought, really, that God would abandon his own creation and that we would cease to exist. When our daughter Tess was um, 18 months old, I remember getting on a plane with her, just her and I going to visit um, family in Florida. And kids under two generally fly free, and she sat on my lap the whole time, and I remember when we were getting up to leave, you know, I had our baggage up on the, up top, and I had to set her down on the chair, on the seat for a minute to grab our baggage. And when I set her down, um, she just, she, she, she was overcome with quivering fear and terror. I mean, she was there for like 20 seconds. But she was just overcome with terror and fear. Because she, she thought I was standing up and I was going to leave without her. And it, it was heartbreaking as a father, right? Um, and she's like, dada, 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 up, 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 up. She really thought I was going to walk off the plane without her. And she was terrified at the thought. Now, what if God were to leave us on the airplane? <laughs> right? Leave us in the airplane. What if he were to exit the plane without us? And that's where the, the psalmist, his petition, he, he, he changes his... his uh, verb tense a little bit. And he says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May, may the Lord rejoice in his works. It's conditional. It presumes that it's possible that God might stop rejoicing in his works, that he might just exit the plane. And the, and the psalmist is petitioning God, don't stop rejoicing in your works. Don't stop taking pleasure and you might wonder, well, why is the psalmist worried about this? That God might stop rejoicing in his works? Because of sinners, right? You see here, <clears throat> the psalmist says, May sinners vanish from the earth, and that wicked be no more. So, even though God's creation is wonderfully made, and was good, the psalmist sees a blemish. And the blemish is him, It's you, it's me, it's sin, it's evil in the world. The world was created good. God did not create evil in the world. And the psalmist is worried that that God might decide to trash the whole thing and start over again. In fact, Martin Luther uh, said that if the world had treated me the way that it has treated God, I would have kicked the vile, rotten thing out of its orbit. And again, this forces us to question, to the question of whether God will continue to delight in his creation. At the beginning of this sermon, when I spoke of God's playfulness, I was getting at the idea of delight, that God delights in his creation. And that's why he created the world. When I watch our children play, even though they're, even, they're older now than little kids, uh, it still brings me a great deal of delight. <clears throat> if you were to ask my wife and I, why do we have children? The only good answer we can give that is simply that we wanted somebody to play around the house. Uh, it wasn't because there was some incompleteness in our marriage or that kids are useful. Um, it, was, it was just delight. It was the overflow of our love that children came about. And see, when God created the world, it was for delight. It was for His pleasure. It was for the overflow of His love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was an expression of his playfulness. But now we're confronted with this terrifying thought that what if God decides to bulldoze the playground? and start over again. See, the natural world is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm hoping you're, you're enjoying it this summer. There's dolphins that skip through the waves without a care. You know, birds singing in the morning. But there's also hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and ticks that carry Lyme disease. You know, the created world is Janus-faced. In other words, it it looks in opposite directions. It's very ambiguous. You can't draw the conclusion by looking at nature that God is good or that God delights in his creation. Because there's a lot of times when the creation um, hurts us. I suppose the last year of pandemic is an example of that. The psalmist actually does not leave us with a lot of confidence. Um, the confidence that we need in order to believe that God will continue to delight in his creation. We can only gain this confidence when we look past the psalm to the person of Jesus. I told you that God as creator, uh, creator, God as sustainer, and now I want to close with just reminding you that God is redeemer and what it meant for God to be Redeemer. The redemption accomplished in Jesus Christ tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God delights in his creation. He delights in his creation. He is committed to redeeming his creation fully. Why? Because the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. He became flesh. He became incarnate. And when he ascended into heaven, he did not throw off his humanity. He still has it. He will for the eternity on. God is committed to his creation 100%, and he delights in it. That is the promise of the incarnation to us. He delights in it, he delights in us, and he was willing to become a creature and to actually suffer the consequences of sin, death, and decay, but then to raise it again anew from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you delight in your creation, that Jesus, that Jesus holds our humanity in heaven, seated at the right hand of, of, of the Father, and that someday we heaven and earth will be reunited, and our flesh, which is frail with sinfulness and corruption, will be liberated and be fully glorified to reflect what it was originally meant to be, Lord, we know you delight. Um, We see your joy throughout the creation, Lord. And uh, we ask, Lord, that we would have a deep sense of, of your love for us through the things that you have made. May we enjoy them rightly, and may they direct us to worship and praise of you. In the name of Jesus, amen.